You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, presented by John Jacob. What this podcast needs is a bit of suspense. I see on your Twitter profile that you describe yourself as the happy violinist. And when I read that, I have to tell you, when I read that in my my hotel room, I did internally go, oh, please. (laughs) So why is it important to say that you're the happy violinist? You know, um, as long as we're here, we may as well enjoy it, you know, because you go on stage, you stand up in front of people, and uh, in a way, you're in charge of everybody else's mood, you know. So many things go wrong all the time. There's always issues, there's always problems, there's always uh, troubles. And so I think a long time ago, I thought, yes, you can focus on that, but as long as you're here, you may as well enjoy it. Violinist Gil Shaham heard here playing the Brahms Violin Concerto with the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Claudio Bardo in a Deutsche Grammophon release from 2002. He is the second artist I've spoken to during my thoroughly good expedition to Dubai in September 2021. Shaham played the Brahms Concerto with the Slovak Philharmonic and Sergei Sembatian at the Inglaska International Music Festival. It's a 30-day live music event in downtown Dubai created by the European Foundation for Support of Culture and Samit, a commercial group staging live events in the Middle East. Shaham's performance was undoubtedly a touching affair. He is a generous performer who is happy to acknowledge the audience and orchestra during and in between movements. The American violinist's sweet tone is matched by his jovial, unpretentious presence on stage. And he possesses an infectious kind of sincerity that is endearing. It's also something that poses quite a lot of questions. Shaham is one of a handful of performers, for example, who can seemingly switch between the character and the music and the personality of the performer mid-performance. Nothing is compromised, certainly not the intensity of the performance, which was met on the night with exuberant sunny applause in the Dubai Opera Auditorium. I know how much effort I need to summon up to smile on a demanding day. So how does he manage to look so perky and bright on stage? And does it stop when he walks off the stage? Is he a different man before and after an interview compared to during an interview? When does the persona kick in and when does it switch off? Spoiler alert, it doesn't. Uh, Tell me, whilst you dip your shortbread into your tea... Mm. I'm judging you now, but why would you do that? Why, why just, have you done that? Just have it. <laughs> I don't know. It? Do you not? Do you not do the not shortbread? No. N- not the shortbread. But what would you dip in your tea? Uh, a rich tea, which is sort of low, low in fat. You're smiling at me in a way that says that you don't understand what I'm saying. Rich tea biscuits are phenomenally dry. Ah, I see. So you know those biscuits without a high fat content, I'd be more inclined to dip. Now, do you, do you have experience with Tim Tams? 
uh, water tim tams. I, oh, I suppose that's. Uh, I think that's an Australian thing. That's okay. We we talk about Australia too. I, somebody explained to me. I just now when you were saying this, this reminded me, but I'm not sure how this works. Where you take, a, um, I think it's kind of rectangular. Yes. And and you just take a little bite of a little triangle on one corner, one angle of the Tim Tam, and then you dip it in your coffee or, or hot your, chocolate. Your drink of choice. Or your yes. Hot okay. Tea. Yes. And then you sip it through oh. the little hole you've created, and I think there's some sort of a sugar rush that... Uh, Would you do that? I, I remember trying it and... Uh, <laughs> There's one I other recommend it. I recommend <laughs> There's one other seemingly banal question that I have to ask you, given that you are an American and you are drinking English tea. Talk me through how you made that tea, please. I mean, I realise that you didn't make it, but just for the purposes of this, how would you normally make your tea? Because this is very important to me. Um, I, right? I use milk yeah, and a lot of sweetener, but, but really a lot, like a shocking amount. But what about the order? Sweet. What about the order of tea making? Yes. How do you go about it? First, when, when there's time, first the tea, and you let it brew. Then you add the sweetener and make sure it um, melts, oh. and then the, yeah, then yeah, the milk. Yeah. Yes. But when you're short for time, I just melt the sweetener first, mm-hmm. pour in the hot water, the, the rest of the hot water, uh-huh. with uh, the tea, okay. and... Uh, then uh, that's okay. I was concerned that you may have made made your tea in a in a non-standard, non-British way, but we can continue with this is interview that because that is that now, is absolutely you, fair. Do you do this? How how would you describe this move? You know, when you take the tea bag and you um, drain the rest of oh, the remaining. I'd, I'd say that that's quite that's a sophisticated method. Do you do that? Actually, because I thought I saw this that. in the UK. I think I learned this. I don't think you do that with a PG Tips bag, because they're quite cheap. That looks like a woven bag, and so I think that's why you can do that. I have to reassure you that this is not the standard content of the podcast interview. It's just that those are the kind of things that I pick up on. Um, Tell me who you are and what you do. Um, My name's Gil, and I'm a violinist, and I'm here in Dubai to be part of the music festival where I'll work with uh, Maestro Sergei Sambatyan and the Slovak Philharmonic Orchestra. I see on your Twitter profile that you describe yourself as the happy violinist. And when I read that, I have to tell you, when I read that in my, in my hotel room, I did internally go, oh, please. Why is, that, why is it important to say? So why is it important to say that you're the happy violinist? Well, I have to confess that... Are you going to tell me that you didn't write that? I did not write that. I don't do my Twitter page and my Facebook. I'm, I, honestly, I don't know how to. Um, but I will ask why, um, why that descri- description. I can, get, I can get, back to, get back to you. When, when you said it... Fielding that question. When you said to me, the happy violinist, my first thought was... Um, like Disneyland, you know? Yes, How, don't don't, exactly they, what I thought, don't yeah. they say, like, oh, it's the happiest place on earth? Yeah, I guess that's yeah. not a bad thing. No, it's not. That's no, not, I mean, yeah. My I, internal I, cynical British brain yeah. is what prompted me to respond in that way. But I have read in other interviews that um, people comment on your perkiness, positive outlook. They do, because it's all written in interviews. That's what people comment on. Are you aware of that? 
or are you telling me that you don't even read the interviews? Are you even present at the interviews? I, I don't really know. I just think, you know, um, as long as we're here, we may as well enjoy it, you know? Where does that come from? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I guess it's a coping mechanism, right? What did you say? Yeah. Yeah, I what, don't know. What, what would you need to cope with? I think I, think I need a little more tea to think well, about that. Then I'm going <laughs> um, to wait here until you've answered the question, because that's how it works. Uh, what do you think it is helping you cope with then? Yeah, with life, you know, with... Um, I, You know, maybe now that you asked, I think maybe it does have to do with performing all these years, you know, because you go on stage... You stand up in front of people, and uh, in a way, you're in charge of everybody else's mood, you know? And uh, so many things go wrong all the time. There's always issues, there's always problems, there's always uh, troubles. And so I think a long time ago, I thought, yes, you can focus on that. But as long as you're here, you may as well enjoy it. You come from a family of scientists. Your parents are scientists. Yes. My did they, ha did they hold that, that positive mindset too? I mean, it's clear, it's evident from your face as well that, you know, you are clearly not someone who's quick to anger. I mean, I do, you know, I do. I am... Um, I, <laughs> I, I, it's not me taunting you. I, right I mean... Because <laughs> I, I, there is an audience here. <laughs> I was going to say, it's quite funny, actually. <laughs> you know, when I... When I do, but I think everybody, everybody does. That's part of who we are. Um, Were well, your I don't parents know. the same way then? Well, did they have that? Did they display that positive mindset? May, yeah, maybe not. It's a good question. Wh what about your folks? Are you <laughs> this interview is not about me. Uh, were, but <laughs> the introduction that I script and record is about me. Were, <laughs> were, but were right. they also in um, some sort of public performance or in, no? no, no right. Nothing like we'll that. We'll come on to that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think maybe it has, it's a function of being a middle child. I was the second of three. I have an older brother and a younger sister. And, uh, you know, middle children, um, it's not that we're, um, you know, we're somewhat under the radar, you know, but we have to navigate through everybody. And, um, yeah, so something about that. I, th I think so maybe maybe it has to do navigating with that. Uh, around the, the the other siblings was about you know and the parents I suppose was about being positive and upbeat and and I think that's probably closer to it. Not that I know, but um, yeah. But I think that maybe that's where that comes from. How do you think that is reflected in your playing? Yeah, so or your musicianship because yeah. I realise actually playing is sort of. I mean, I, I realise that we're talking about the same thing, but maybe musicianship is a better is a better word to use. You know, I don't know why, but right now, as you're asking me this, I'm I'm thinking of Bill Murray. I don't know if um, you've had time to. I'm aware of Bill Murray. Uh, to to like see his interviews or some of the documentaries about him. Um, one of my heroes, you know. Um, I think maybe also came from a very large family, much larger than mine. But um, he talks about what he learned 
in improv class. He used to go to improv in Chicago, and there was something about being in the moment and reacting to people. And it's, it's something about losing yourself or you know, um, removing yourself from the moment and looking at people around you and reacting as quickly and as best you can. And, uh, and I think maybe in a way that's our job as musicians too. I, I always think... To remove yourself from the moment. Yeah, actually, I think in all of art, removing yourself is the most difficult and most important thing to do. If you really want to experience what your listener is hearing or what your, you know, what your um, viewer is, is seeing you know, as a you know, visual artist, you, you have, the most important thing is to remove yourself from it. But, um, but I, I often think our job as musicians... You know, if I go on stage and perform the Brahms Violin Concerto, I think that's very similar to the job of an actor that goes on stage, has the ideal written on the page, and then has to somehow bring that ideal to life for your audience. And so, yeah, I don't know that it's... it's it, it, mo mostly it's not about joy. You know, there's very... Very little music that's purely joyous. But, uh, yeah, but it's sort of about the whole range of emotions. And what we're supposed to do is to bring the feelings of the composer to our audience and somehow interact with um, the other humans in the room. Is that to do with just the Brahms, or are you talking about the words as well? I believe this is every musical work. You know, I think very much our, our job is like the job of an actor, you know. That makes me feel rather sorry, because that makes me feel as though, because I know that when I'm listening, that those moments when I'm completely engaged in a performance, i.e. actively listening, I am in that moment, and that is what makes, makes for an utterly absorbing performance as opposed to... A mediocre one, for example, but actually, in order to do that, you are you're telling me that you're sort of having to be slightly detached from the, from it, or have I misunderstood? Maybe I've misunderstood. I, I think you have to take yourself out of it. You know, if if um, do I, I have to take myself out of it, or are you saying that you should? No, you I think the 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 art the, the musician or or the actor or whoever it is, you know, if I, I imagine, let, you know, just to continue the actor analogy, let's say you have two takes. In one take, you um, got tongue-tied and mispronounced your word, and it's very embarrassing. But the feeling for your audience was much more intense than in another take where you said it beautifully, you know? But um, somehow the rhythm of the moment, the intensity of the moment didn't come across. Then I believe the correct artistic choice is, never mind you, how you pronounce the word. More important is how did you make your audience feel? And what do you see when you've made them feel something? What do you observe? What do you... I mean, I ask this a lot of, of musicians, possibly because I'm not on stage myself, but what is it that you see when they are hooked in? Yeah, you know, that's the, 
the best feeling, you know, when you... I, I'm, I'm thinking about Brahms violin concerto. I was just practicing up in my, my room. If you can really go through that narrative, that story of 30 minutes, and all experience it together. Um, I mean, it's a very intimate thing. Everybody literally breathes at the same time, breathes together for 30 minutes. Um, I think, you know, that's, that's the goal. That's, that's, you know, that's what we, we aim for. That's but you have the audience in the dark. Yeah, essentially, when you're stood on stage, you have the light on you, which means that you see the audience in the dark. How? What is it that you're seeing? What is it that you're feeling that makes you go, "We've clinched it here"? Or maybe it's not as maybe it's not as literal as that. Maybe it's just a, a feeling that you have when you walk off stage. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is you just go by feeling. I do see people, and at least in the front rows, and you can tell. And I see my fellow musicians out there, and so hope, hopefully, you have a good gauge of how it's coming across. Um, although sometimes you don't, you know. The, when With a microphone, with a video camera, sometimes you see something later and it's completely different from what you thought it was, you know, in the moment, you know. I want to ask you, is this your first time in Dubai? First time. How okay. about you? Uh, it's my first time too in Dubai and, you know, typical British bloke abroad, just a little bit like, Oh, oh no, I don't know. How do I get there? And do I, can I get a taxi? And it's a very bewildering thing. And just the journey here was just like 15 minutes of going to it. It felt like going to another city, really. It was bizarre. But what struck me on that journey was that this place is epic. It is an epic scale. Everything is much, much bigger than really than I can really contemplate. And for me, classical music and the experience of classical music is very intimate. It's, you know, it's as, as intimate as we are sat now. Um, and I'm interested in that contrast, you know, classical music in an epic space. Uh, and I wonder whether you have any reflections on that. I mean, I think, um, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, does it impact? I'm now bitten into a biscuit, and I'm asking another question. Please. But does it to help you? Does does the? I suppose for me, it's to do with the environment in in which one experiences a musical performance, and how that environment influences that performance. And so, in a in a place like this, it's just so so big that it almost my assumption is that it would have a negative impact on the performance. You know, my feeling is. Um, Firstly, ever since I've been here, people have been so extraordinarily kind to me everywhere. And everybody speaks English, you know. <laughs> it's really wonderful. Um, I, I, I've heard, you know, wonderful things about the Opera House. I haven't been there yet. But my feeling is Dubai now really has everything, you know. And so for the people who crave great classical music um, I think th this is a wonderful home for it and, and can be even more of a home for it um, I have met already several musicians over the past few years who grew up here and studied their, their music here and I think you're right it is, there is something epic about it and, and part of that is that they really want to have 
everything here, and I think I think they do. See, they, from a British perspective, that that feeds into a hunch that I have that in certain areas of the world, and this is completely alien to my experience in the UK, classical music and the arts is really powerful. It's, I mean, it is powerful, but as in it's really valuable because it, it can leverage things. And, and in a place like this, which is so grand and so big and has so much money in it, um, that point is underlined that actually this is something that is really valued in this part of the world. Yeah, I think that's that may be right. I think that I was I was trying to formulate something, and I'm you know I, I I'm jet lagged, so maybe you can help me. Maybe yourself. you can help me say this better better. But um, I think this great music that we play, these great masterworks, the experience of music making, um, even sharing it with one person to another, I can't think of anything more epic than that. Is that, um, did I say that correctly? Said it correctly, and I understand, <laughs> and I don't quite know how to come back to it. I suppose, for me as an audience member, maybe, maybe actually this is the difference that is emerging in our conversation, which is that, <clears throat> for me as an audience member, the performance is shaped not only by the performer on stage, it is shaped as soon as I walk in the door, it's shaped in the taxi on the way to the, to the concert venue, frankly, because that's when the anticipation builds, and when you step into a, an audience space, there is theatre in the foyer, that, yes. long before the theatre in the auditorium. Um, and so, for me, for me, just hearing the orchestra tune. <laughs> do you? Yes, absolutely. Especially after fourteen months of not hearing an orchestra. Oh yeah. yes, Re I mean, really, actually, <laughs> after this COVID, I, it's not that we took it for granted before, but I think now we really appreciate how how precious this is. You know, I. But I do. I think just hearing the orchestra tune, this is just magic. Mm. You know, suddenly there's pure pitch. There are these uh, sounds. I think that's a very that's a very amazing thing. Uh, how did COVID impact you? Uh, I guess um, I guess very much like uh, like most of the musicians that that I know. We were very lucky. Uh, none of us was. I mean, we think maybe maybe one of us in the family had it. I don't know, but we we don't really know. Um, none of us was very was sick at all um, and um, you know I, I it was ironic because it, you know sort of tragic times but uh, there were positive aspects to it I, I loved being with my family at home you know in our New York apartment for a year they're completely sick of me at this point but I loved it how is that possible <laughs> <laughs> Talk to them. You're really corny thing to say. Believe but me. Really, I mean, you just spend every waking hour smiling at people, so I can't imagine that they would be sick of you. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. But yeah, it was it was a very basically trying to taunt you in order to get a reaction. That's what it is. I mean, we did. You know, we did have a lot of music in the house. My wife is a violinist, mm -hmm. Adele Anthony, mm -hmm. and uh, all our three children play, and. Uh, so you've got three children as well. So therefore, how is the middle child behaving? When you say as well, you mean... As your parents. Oh, as my parents. Yes, yes. Yeah, so tell me, how is your middle <laughs> child navigating in amongst the other two siblings? Oh, she's, she's wonderful. I'm I mean, sure is, it's, quite, it's quite a different, um, it's quite a different um, dynamic because uh, our kids are more spread up than spread apart from what I was when I was a child. 
um, and it's boy, girl, boy. Whereas uh, in my family, we were boy, boy, girl. Okay. So um, I, I, I think there probably are still similar uh, middle child dynamics, but, um, but it's, it's somehow, somehow different from, from, um, from my childhood. What were the uh, other positive impacts of this weird period for you then? Yeah, you know, there's just something about slowing down and examining yourself and asking the big questions, right? How, how was it for you? Oh, it was terrifying. Terrifying. I, was, I, I, found, um, I found that a lot of my friends, uh, when I say terrifying, I was lucky that I had regular income, but it wasn't particularly easy income. Uh, it could have come to an end at any time, and a lot of my musician friends were out of work. Yes, and the longer I saw a government seemingly unable or uninterested in coming up with a decent plan, then the longer it seemed that we would know but that we would have to wait before we got live music. I mean, I'm speaking very personally now, but no, but um, I, I hated it, absolutely hated it, and I didn't think it would come to an end. And and I think on a personal level, both me and my partner are probably experiencing the pandemic in reverse now, in that work opportunities. Because, because the pandemic came to an end in sort of July time in the UK. Um, that's usually when most people go on holiday. And so recruitment and work opportunities are a good deal more, to gen- a good deal more difficult to generate in those months anyway. So it, it was almost like feeling the pandemic in reverse for us. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Um, so we were getting that hit um, mentally that people, at the, the musicians at the beginning of the pandemic were getting when there was that enormous shock. So I found it, I found it very, very difficult. And I didn't get that, oh, let's take a long, hard look at ourselves because we've got this opportunity to. I didn't have that at all. No, I think you're right. I think, especially for musicians, the economics of it were devastating. And my friends who are musicians in the UK, I know during normal times, it's quite can be a challenging existence and and during covid i can imagine adele and i are older and so in a way we were lucky because we were able to weather the storm and and we knew we would be able to you know so we we didn't know remember in the beginning we didn't know how long this would go on and then it just kept going on and on um but we were able to continue, and I, I think the impact on young musicians mm. or any young artist must have been that much more intense, you know? Somebody who just graduated from theater program or music program and is out to start building something is absolutely crushed right at the beginning. Um, yeah, I, so I, I can see what you mean. It, is, it, it, it can be terrifying. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned the UK. Um, that reminds me that yours is the last concert that I saw at the Barbican before the lockdown started. Really? And I think you did Brook with the LSO. I think it was Wouldn't the Brook. Wouldn't it have been March the 12th with I, the LSO? I haven't, got, I haven't got a calendar in my head, but, but it was, certainly would have been 12, uh, March, yes. With LSO and Susanna Melky conducting. Possibly. And I... 
in my mind, I thought maybe we did Dvorak violin concerto. Well, maybe it's Dvorak. I'm sorry, I but, can't. But I, that was my final concert too. Oh, was it really? Yes. Well, you were very good. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, everybody was very pleased with it. No, that, that was the last concert I heard. It was in the third row from the front. And the following day, I think I was on one of the very last flights back to New York before they closed. Yeah. Yeah. So how then? I'm, I'm not that I'm stalking you, I'm just, I've done my research. How is it that you then came to play with the LPO? Oh, yes. Because so they, they, they filmed in the Festival Hall in sort of isolation, didn't they? Yes, I want to say that was this spring. So it was, uh, yes, and so we, um, yeah, we, we went. Yeah, because I look, at the, I look at the footage of it and think, oh, well, that's what the LPO did in the summer of last year, but what you're actually telling me is you were allowed to come over here and... and it yeah. was in because it was in spring. There were there were various periods, and I, I was lucky to do a little bit over the over this time. Um, it, it was crazy, you know, different rules for different places. I, at one point, before, or or maybe in between, closing down, Europe was open, and and I went. I think I want to say September. It may have been October. I went to Paris and then Hanover, but. Um, the, the German rule was that if you were coming from France at the time and you passed the COVID test, you, you were not required to quarantine. However, the city of Hanover also said at the time that you do not need to quarantine. But the building of the NDR orchestra in Hanover required that if you were coming from France, <laughs> you were required to spend five days quarantining with uh, a couple of uh, negative tests there were separate le- there were separate rules according to the country the region and the venue and even the the very venue the building itself you know wow it suddenly makes our government look really organized it? <laughs> <laughs> wow wow that's, that's quite incredible i have um, i have one other question to to ask you i was going to say i've got one other question to tell you but that would seem a bit a little bit rude shameless plug is that uh, yes? No, I, just because, as you were saying, you used the word isolation, and it reminded me that uh, a few months into the pandemic, I got a nice email from my friend Scott Wheeler, who's a, a very brilliant composer who lives in Massachusetts, and he said, "Hey, Gil, I'm I'm sort of thinking of you, and I have a, I've attached a uh, a little piece. See what you think." And he'd written a solo violin rag, which he called the isolation rag. Right. And uh, I was able to um, premiere that on the internet uh-huh. on a, in a music festival from Dresden in, in May. Um, and this was a festival that was scheduled to be live and then went, uh, went online. And so, yeah, and I... I I, I really, I, I dig the piece, and we've been getting nice reactions to it. So that's my shameless How plug, nice Isolation to, Rag by Scott Wheeler. How nice to know people who'll just do things for you, create uh, things. I, for I was so honored. Them. People don't do that for me. I was so honored and so, so honored and so touched. And, uh, yeah, just uh, very, very, yeah, very, very lar- lucky to be part of that. As a result of that, you've thrown in uh, an additional. You've thrown me an opportunity to ask an additional question. So this is a penultimate question, sir, and then you can you are released from this uh, war room that we're in. Um, 
you you speak about uh, premiering something on the internet uh, in a way that makes me think that you don't often spend time on the internet. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't say I'm uh, like an internet maven, but I probably spend as much time as uh, as most of us most of us do. I asked because I read an interview uh, online where you were talking about setting up Canary Classics. Oh yes, yes. And Canary how you'd Classics. said that when moving away from DG, you felt that even then DG was saying that the old model of of recordings had changed, and that was in 2013. I want to say it was even earlier, maybe 2004. Maybe the interview was 2013. The interview was 2013. You said ten year, over the past 10 years, right. DG have said that, that, that uh, the old model is changing. I'm wondering, since that interview, uh, whether you think that model has changed. Well, I, you know, I still feel this is the most exciting time to be a musician, to be an artist. When I was starting out and recording with DG and with others... Um, I don't know if you remember this, but we had refrigerator-sized machines, you know, in the studio. The Dolby machine, you know, and uh, people used to use razor blades to edit, you know, to uh, cut the tape, to literally cut the tape and paste it back together again. And now you really have the highest quality recording, for, for example, the high recording capabilities. I suppose on your phone. I was going to say on your laptop, but but probably even on your phone, you know. So this is really. So, the, so you think that the quality of the recording or the 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 ability to record high quality sound has improved? Has sort of is more prevalent. It's also become much less expensive. Yes. Much. But less musicians are not necessarily getting those musicians are not necessarily getting their money. No, but yeah, musicians, <laughs> musicians we, we all need to go to business school. You know, yeah. I, I, I should be the first one, really. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it, so there's the issue of the high quality the, of recording, but there's also, you can reach your audience at the touch of a button. You just press a button, you reach your audience. This is unprecedented, you know, in, in our history. So I, I do think it's the most... Maybe the most exciting time. That to has be the honest. model changed, though. So yeah, I mean, I think the economic model has changed for sure. You don't need to invest in hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment to make the highest quality audio recording or video recording. Um, and I, I do think maybe the, you, this relationship has has changed. People connect through the internet and maybe that's in your in your world too that that must have changed quite a lot the underlying message our our shared humanity you know what um, I think what we well maybe you and I feel matters most that's still the same but uh, the model around that yeah I think everything has, has changed would you ever sign up to a label now you know what? What I what I feel these days, and I guess always, I've always had trouble with uh, authority. You know, <laughs> and um, and um, I I value this freedom that I have now. You know, I'm really now at a place where I can want to do something and then make it happen and make it happen you know oh, you're Be suggesting that a record label is an authority figure well at the time i i signed an exclusivity contract right. 
and those contracts prohibited you from, you know, if something came up with a different label, you were not allowed to do that. Or if something came up with a musician that did not have a contract with your label or something like that, you were not allowed to do that because of your exclusivity clause. And so, yeah, these days I feel very lucky to, to have this freedom that I have. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast presented by John Jacob. Follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter at Thoroughly Good, Thoroughly underscore good on Instagram, and Thoroughly Good Me on Facebook. The Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast is available on any half-decent podcast platform like Google or Amazon or Spotify, plus some others you might not have heard of.